Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in section 81 through 83 of the Doctrine and Covenants. Section 81 is the beginnings of the presidency of the high priesthood. It's what we call the first presidency. So we're going to actually call Frederick G. Williams as a counselor. But Mike, he wasn't the first choice, was he? No, he was not. So what happened with the first choice? The first choice was a fellow by the name of Jesse Gauss. And he was called to be a counselor to the prophet Joseph Smith, but he his name is going to be scratched out of the revelation because he was unable to fulfill his assignment. Uh, Jesse Gauss was called, and a lot of people ask questions like, okay, why was he chosen if he's this relatively new member of the church? And we don't know why, but one of the reasons we think as to why he was chosen and why he might have been a good fit is because of section 78, verse 3. In section 78, verse 3, it says, The time has come, and now is at hand, and behold and lo, it must needs be that there be an organization of my people in regulating and establishing the affairs of the storehouse for the poor of my people, both in this place and in the land of Zion. And Jesse Gauss was that guy. He had over three years' experience living with the Shakers in Massachusetts and in Ohio, and he also had 23 years of experience living in Quaker communities. So this was a fellow who knew how to live a communal life, and the Lord had just revealed that that's where he wants to move the saints. And some historians look at this calling of Jesse Gauss and say, what a perfect fit. He's older than Joseph. He has experience doing this, and he was gung-ho with the restoration. And he serves for a while. But his second wife, her name is Minerva. His first wife died in childbirth, having their fourth child. And Minerva writes letters back and forth with Jesse and basically says, I'm not following you in your faith. There's this tension between him and his wife. They're not really unified. And he has children to take care of. And she's not on board. And so that's why I'm a little bit merciful with Jesse. He kind of falls off the map historically. We don't really know a lot about him after he leaves the saints. Uh, sometimes historians write things like, oh, he was unfaithful. He didn't fulfill the assignment. And I like to say he didn't fulfill the assignment. And there's lots of reasons why. But when he doesn't fulfill the assignment, Frederick G. William is called and section 81 has some marvelous information about how to perform your duties in the first presidency. And I love this list. I love when the Lord simplifies our duties in the church to a simple list. And I love what he does here in verse 4. He says, Doing this will do the greatest good unto your fellow beings and will promote the glory of him who is your Lord. So going back to verse 3, he says, If you are faithful in counsel, circle the word in each time and you'll get the list. If you are faithful in counsel, in the office which I have appointed unto you, in prayer, and in thy ministry of proclaiming the gospel in the land of the living and among thy brethren. Now, he hasn't introduced the work for the dead yet, so in our day he would probably add, and saving the dead as well. So I would just say there's a beautiful list from the Lord saying, if you want to do the greatest good in the church and promote the glory of God— be faithful in counsel. 
be faithful in your church calling, be faithful in prayer, and then be faithful in saving the dead, preaching the gospel, and perfecting the saints. Now, the one I want to emphasize is he tells a member of the First Presidency, a future member of the First Presidency, to be faithful in counsel. This church is run by councils. The First Presidency is the council of the three. We've got the council of the twelve. We've got ward councils and state councils. We have general councils. We have the council of the family. We have the council of the two in a marriage, a husband and wife. This church is filled with councils. If you'll flip to section 102 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where the Lord organizes the first high council, and he's going to reveal the duties of that council. Now, notice in verse 19 a misunderstanding that we often have with councils. Sometimes we assume that the council comes to consensus. But look at verse 19. After the evidences are heard, the counselors, accusers, and accused have spoken, the president shall give a decision. Almost without fail in the church, there is a governing officer in the council. There's a president or a bishop or someone's in charge of the council, and the decision lies in that person's hands. Now, notice in the next three verses an interesting doctrine. What makes a council's decision or the president's decision an error? So verse 20, but should the remaining counselors who have not spoken or any one of them after hearing the evidences and pleadings impartially discover an error in the decision of the president? So what might make a president's decision an error? Is it because you just disagree? No. So look at 21 and 22. If after a careful rehearing, any additional light is shown upon the case the decision shall be altered accordingly. But in case no additional light is given, the first decision shall stand. So in other words, if the president didn't have all the facts or didn't see it from every perspective, and having that additional light would have changed the decision, then we consider the first decision an error and we rehold the counsel. So what then would that suggest it means to be faithful in counsel? It means my job, if I'm a member of the council, is to make sure the president sees the problem from my point of view. That's why we have so many different people in the council. That's why the primary's there. That's why the Relief Society's there, as well as the elders and the youth so that we can see from everyone's perspective. But if I hold back a comment, I might actually lead to an error in the decision because they need to see the problem from my perspective. We make mistakes when presidents of councils do not see every perspective. Years ago, one of our general authorities who's since been given emeritus status, his name was Rolf Kerr, served on an advisory committee for the president of Utah State University. He said, I was a relatively young and recent appointee to a major administrative position at Utah State University. I had great admiration for the university president with whom I served. I was very anxious to please him. 
on major issues, I would anticipate the position that he was most likely to take and make my comments accordingly in our deliberations. I began to notice that he didn't ask for my opinion very often. Then an issue arose where the president and all the other members of the president's council were united on how best to solve that particular problem at hand. I felt strongly that their position was wrong, and I mustered the courage to express my contrary view. A sudden and very awkward silence fell over the room. The president said, well, this apparently deserves more thought before we make the decision. I left the meeting only to have the president follow me to my office, closing the door behind him as he entered. You can imagine what I thought was coming. He said, Rolf, you may have noticed recently that I have not asked for your opinion very often. You typically have accurately thought out what my position is most likely to be on the issues before us, and then you have taken that position. Not until today has your opinion been of real value to me. I know what I think on the issues. What I need in the decision-making process is to know the contrary opinion. Only then can we make knowledgeable and well-reasoned decisions. Thank you. And then Elder Kerr said, My position on that issue eventually was adopted and is still in place as policy at Utah State University now 30 years later. If you serve on a council, your job is to make sure the council leader sees from your perspective. If not, we're likely going to make a mistake. Do you remember the—I don't know if your church building is 50 or 60 years old, but I want you to think where the bathrooms are in our oldest buildings. And then somewhere along the line, a primary leader had the courage to step forward and say, you're putting the bathrooms in the wrong place. We need to put the drinking fountains and the bathrooms near the primary room. And then all the newest buildings, if you look at all the newer buildings, there's always a bathroom right next to the primary room. That's because a primary leader was finally given a voice in the building decision-making and said, we're putting the bathrooms in the wrong place. And that's what counseling does. So those of you who serve in councils, I would encourage you to be faithful in counsel. So let me just once again get back to that list. The Lord says, if you want to do the greatest good for fellow, your fellow beings, if you want to promote the glory of God, save the dead, preach the gospel, perfect the saints, fulfill your calling, pray, and be faithful in counsel. That's section 81. One last historical thought on section 81, and that's the story of Frederick G. Williams. Uh, sometimes when people look at it and say, oh, he was excommunicated, they miss the whole story. So we link some really cool stuff in the show notes where you can go and read about his life, specifically a document written by Nancy Cox, and it was actually published in the Enzyme. I'm of the opinion that we don't have the full story on Frederick G. Williams. So I'll just say that. Section 82. All right. Section 82 is doctrinally packed with major significant principles. 
But in order to understand those principles, in order to put them in context, we have to understand the background. What was going on that led to section 82? Because long before we jump into it and read what he's saying about unto whom much is given, much is required, or if you sin again, your former sins will return, or I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. But if you, all these wonderful doctrines come out of this unique situation that led to section 82. This is so important. The main story behind section 82 is a significant rift between two kind of opposing thoughts or ideas. The rift between Edward Partridge and Sidney Rigdon, but it's bigger than these two fellows. Edward Partridge is in the South. He's working in Missouri and he's trying to build the church. He's got to get saints into Missouri. He's got to get them places to live and work to do. He's got to get the land cultivated. We're trying to live consecration. And then you have up in the north, you have Sidney Rigdon, and he's working with Joseph Smith on the translation. And Joseph's in Ohio. And if you look at a map, these places are not close together. There's no telephone. And so all we have communication-wise are these letters, and nobody's speaking face-to-face. So you can kind of tell where I'm going with this. We're talking about a communication breakdown. And so in the fall of 1831, Sidney Rigdon charges Edward Partridge with insulting the Lord's prophet in particular and assuming authority over him in violation of the laws of God. To me, understanding this rift makes 82 come alive. And so Edward Partridge kind of felt that some of the land that was designated wasn't the best. And he also pushed back on some of the settlers coming in. His his recommendation was we need skilled, specific type of laborers to come here to lay the foundation of Zion, and this is the kind of people I want. And so there was this pushback. Now, we don't have the full story, of, but we can kind of triangulate the sources and look at the history of these things and kind of see what's going on. But if you really want a good background of this, you've got to read this awesome paper by Matthew Godfrey. Matthew Godfrey is the general editor and the managing historian of the Joseph Smith Papers Project. And so this is what Matthew Godfrey states in his paper. He says, The difficulties between those in Missouri and those in Ohio indicated that a power struggle or a sort of power struggle was occurring between the two groups over the administration of the gathering of Zion and the respective role of Joseph Smith, Edward Partridge, and others in that governance. If Joseph Smith or the elders wanted to send people to Zion, but Partridge didn't think they could be accommodated, Partridge was accused of a lack of faith and of attempting to undermine Joseph's authority. Conversely, when Joseph Smith reprimanded Partridge or others, he was perceived by some as acting in a dictatorial way. This led John Coral, who's in Missouri, and Edward Booth to accuse Joseph of being unduly despotic in his actions as the head of the church. But others that were in Ohio, like Sidney Rigdon, supported the prophet in these difficulties, and they believed that Partridge and others in Missouri were not giving enough respect to the prophet's position. That is the gist of what's going on. Now, there's lots more. A lot of this stuff was recorded in the minutes. We link it, but for brevity's sake... That's the background. And if you read section 82, seeing it through that lens, it's awesome. And it makes a ton of sense. This rift is caused by the tension that Bryce just spoke about. If I'm in a council and I have a contrary view, 
And let's say Bryce is the president of the council and says, we need to move in this direction. And I voice an opposing view. It doesn't mean I don't like Bryce. Or that we're enemies or that yeah. or, or that you're an idiot. We so often assume disagreement means dislike. Yeah. And that's the problem. Disagreement doesn't necessarily mean and shouldn't mean dislike. But when they disagreed, they assumed it meant dislike, contrary, you're opposing, you're a threat, and now the claws come out. Sometimes opinions get really heated. And I'm assuming that when Sydney kind of comes on the offensive against Edward, I'm assuming the best in Sidney Rigdon. And my assumption is he's defending Joseph. He's defending the prophetic direction as given through him. And I'm also going to assume the best in Edward Partridge, that when he has the decisions he has to make and he goes in a contrary direction, it's for a reason. It's not to be contrary. My, my analysis of both of these individuals is that they have good intent. But good intended people sometimes don't agree. It's kind of like Pehorn and Captain Moroni when that stinging letter that Captain Moroni writes to Pehorn. But luckily in Pehorn's case, he says, I love your heart and I don't fault you for what you've said. But if you don't respond that way, if you were to respond kind of Captain Moroni's way, you would be lashing out at each other. But you're both in the cause of God's kingdom but you're allowing your differences to push you apart. Because you see it differently, you are allowing animosity into your heart against the person who disagrees with you. And that's exactly what is happening here. One of the ways I like to apply this is, have you ever had a disagreement? And by the way, of all the disagreements we have, some of the strongest ones that are heated are in the family. The Lord says, starting in verse 11, and he lists all of the people that have now become party to the riff, and then he says, look, guys, I need you to be bound together by a bond and covenant that cannot be broken by transgression. I need there to be a bond between you, because you are all in the cause of Zion. You are all trying to do the right thing. You've got to see each other clearly. You've got to be bound by a covenant that cannot be broken. Bryce, I got to put this in there. The individuals in verse 11 are some of the powerful men that are kind of having this rift, and the Lord just mixes them up. Some are in the north in Ohio, some are in the south. And I think what I see the Lord doing is saying, guys, we got to get along. We're a fellowship. Because... Verse 14, Zion is the goal here. Zion must increase in beauty, in holiness. Her borders must be enlarged. Her stakes must be strengthened. Now, that's what they were all trying to do. They're all trying to build Zion. They just disagreed on how to do it. And so the Lord says, let's not let that destroy us. And think about the family. So often, we're all trying to do what is best for the family, even though we disagree what that best is. I've seen it happen so many times when, like, an elderly patriarch or a matriarch dies and leaves the siblings to decide, well, what do we do do with the inheritances? What do we do with mom's house? And they fight like crazy about what to do with mom's property. And it's kind of that same situation. The Lord says, look, let's not miss the point here. We're all trying to do what's best for the family. Zion must increase in beauty and in holiness and her stakes be strengthened. I got to throw this in there too, Bryce. 
Can you imagine how this would be different if they were communicating face to face? Yes. And, and the they, same thing f- applies in a family. Like if you talk about what somebody said in your family to somebody else, you're doing it wrong. The best thing we can do, and this is what happens, they go and they get together eventually and they talk about it. We've got to do that, right? And I love the end of 14. We've got to do it with our beautiful garments on. Zion must arise and put on her beautiful garments. And then he says, look, let's talk about what you're all doing. Verse 17, you are to be equal. In other words, you're to all have equal claims upon the properties for the benefit and management of the concerns. And what you're all doing here, verse 18, is kind of an underlying law of the church. Everyone needs to improve their own self. All this for the benefit of the church of the living God, that every man may improve upon his talent that every man may gain other talents. Now, why should I be my very best self? If I'm Edward Partridge, why should I care about the very best way, in my opinion, to build up Zion? If I'm Sidney Rigdon, why should I be my very best? And the answer is, let every man improve upon his talents and gain other talents, even an hundredfold. Why? To be cast into the Lord's storehouse to become the common property of the whole church, every man seeking the interest of his neighbor, and doing all things with an eye single to the glory of God. Do you see what he's trying to say about the riff between Zion and Ohio, or the riff in families, or the riff among a husband and a wife, or even in a ward or a business organization? If we stay focused on the ultimate good, which is the interest of our neighbor, and realize that everything I'm doing is to build the kingdom, then I shouldn't get so bent out of shape personally when other people disagree with how to best build the kingdom. I mean, in in the family context, verse 14 is... It's about my family and my family's bigger than me. In the context of this section, Edward, what we're doing is bigger than what's going on in Missouri. Sydney, what we're doing is bigger than what's going on in Ohio. And that's why I think they get together. Like if you look at the section heading, this is happening in Missouri. They get together and they just air out everything. And they say, this is what you said. This is what I said. And they talk about it. And if you get into the historical stuff in the minutes, Edward Partridge is very humble and says, I am so sorry if this causes and they forgive each other. And it's kind of this beautiful thing. And back to 81, they counseled. They were faithful in counsel. And then this bond that needs to be between them was not broken. So that leads us back to verse three. Unto whom much is given, much is required. And he who sins against the greater light shall receive the greater condemnation. The more authority you receive from God, yes, the more power you can wield, but you need to wield it with greater reverence to God. The more light you have, the better you should act with that light, rather than using that light to prove your point. I think this is one of the most fundamental principles of the gospel is that as we increase in light, we must increase in obedience. 
So here are two prominent men in the church who hold very significant positions, and they're using the authority of that position kind of to bang the other person over the head with a club. And the Lord's saying, when you hold those positions, you are required to act in greater holiness. But the broader context is, as we grow, we should be better every step of the way. Light requires more obedience. Now, this is the most basic process on how we obtain salvation. You don't gain salvation in leaps and bounds. You don't carry a few people across a river and guarantee your exaltation. It doesn't come in leaps and bounds. So we're going to combine two verses. We're going to combine section 82, verse 3, with section 93, verse 28, that says, unto whom much is given, much is required. Meaning, when I give you more light, you need to step up your obedience. Now, section 93, if you step up your obedience, I give you more light. Now, back to section 82, when you get more light, you need to step up your obedience. Section 93, when you step up your obedience, I'm going to give you more light. And that is the process of gaining our salvation through the atonement of Christ. He gives me light. I step up my my obedience because unto whom much is given, much is required. And when I step up my obedience, he gives me more light. That's how we make it to the celestial kingdom. I think we can just sum up this whole process with a wonderful verse in the Book of Mormon, the brilliance of Nephi who seemed to understand the simplicity of how we and Christ work together. Nephi said in Second Nephi chapter 28, verse 30, For behold, thus saith the Lord God, I will give unto the children of men line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little and there a little. And blessed are those who hearken unto my precepts. There's our part and lend an ear unto my counsel. That's our part. For they shall learn wisdom. That's God's part. For unto him that receiveth, I will give more. And from them that say we have enough, from them shall be taken away even that which they have. That simple process is how we hold the Savior's hand and get to exaltation. Light and obedience, back and forth. Now, let's go back to section 82. Let's throw in another thing that needs some clarification. Verse 7, well, verse 6, he says, the Lord's anger is kindled against the inhabitants of the earth. None doeth good, for all have gone out of the way. We're all sinners. We're all needing salvation. So then he says in verse 7, verily I say unto you, I, the Lord, will not lay any sin to your charge. Go your ways and sin no more. And then he throws out this phrase, which I have seen used as a club to bang over people's head. He says, but unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return, saith the Lord your God. The interpretation by many here is that if you sin and then repent, you don't have to pay the consequences because you repented. But if you commit that sin again, Not only do you have that second sin's consequences, but the Lord's going to open back up and lay the consequences of sin number one on you. 
So if you sin again, all of the previous consequences come back and now you have to pay for them. Now that is a pretty bleak view of mortality. It makes you say things like, well, why even repent? Yeah. Or gives you no hope because the reality is the natural man inside you is going to sin again. The chances of me never committing another sin is so minimal that if that's what the Lord meant, I'm in trouble. And that contradicts so many other scriptures. If you'll turn with me to Luke 17, 3 and 4, the Lord commands us to forgive our brother. And if our brother sins against us seven times in one day and comes and asks for forgiveness, we are told to forgive him seven times in a day. Now, certainly the Lord would not hold us to a standard that he himself does not live. Total side note, I know some of you are a little concerned about that verse because, well, at what point do you protect yourself? And I'm not trying to suggest that forgiving someone means we have to let them in and be vulnerable and be harmed by them. There's a balance to that. So I know there's a time when someone is always hurting you that you have to protect yourself. But the standard is we are required to forgive as many times as they request forgiveness. And God would do the same thing. If we sin against God seven times in one day and seven times in that day ask for forgiveness— implied in Luke 17 is that God will forgive us. So how in the world does this back in section 82 square with that truth? Unto that soul who sinneth shall the former sins return. My own thought, now this is just me, I don't know that the Lord ever really expounds on 82.7, but my own personal thought is this, sins come in patterns. We commit sin A, which leads to sin B, which leads to sin C, which leads to sin D, and then to sin E, and then we're in big trouble. Now, all of a sudden, major consequences are following because I've hit sin E. And so then we repent, and we dig out of the hole, and the Lord forgives us and says, look, sin E is a big deal, but I'm going to forgive you. And now I'm back to messing with sin A. And what the Lord, I think, is saying here is, guys, don't fall back into old habits because old habits are going to lead to old sins. Which brings us to E. Right back to E. And it's right here historically because in six years— they're not going to learn the lesson and what's going to happen yeah. in six years. The E material, the big stuff, is we're going to have leading members of the church writing out affidavits against Joseph and against the leadership of the church, and it's going to tear the church apart. People are going to die. We're going to be kicked out of our land, and that is a lot bigger than a couple people having disagreements and exchanging harsh letters, and we don't learn our lesson. Because we get to Nauvoo, and the same thing happens again in 1844, where leading members of the church come at Joseph, and Joseph is killed June 27th, 1844. And it's like we just don't learn our lesson. Look what the Lord's saying. I mean, look in verse 5. The Lord says, six years before it happens, he says, watch for the adversary spreadeth his dominions, and darkness reigneth. He's kind of warning them. I mean, look in verse 10. I'm bound when you do what I say. Look in verse 9. Let me tell you how to act before me that it may turn to your salvation. 
verse 12, manage your affairs both in Zion and in Kirtland. Like Back in verse he's 11, just, the bond that should exist between you. Yeah. A bond of brotherhood and forgiveness. That's sin A and B. The Lord is saying, you've got to fix sin A and B, because if you don't, it's going to lead to sin E again and again and again. I think that's what section 82 verse 7 is trying to say, that you must do more than repent of sin. You need to replace the sin. Repenting of E means that you don't go back to A. You may need to change the circumstances. You may need to change your situation so that you don't fall back into your old ways. You can't pull your hand out of water and leave a hole. Something will fill that hole. You can't take sin out of your life and leave a hole because something will fill that hole. Now, if you don't fill that hole with something better, the most natural thing on earth to fill the hole is what was there in the first place. The sin returns back to the hole. And so we must replace our bad habits because if you do fall back into your old habits, yes, the former sins are going to return. But I just don't think the Lord is simply saying you have to pay for sin A if you ever commit sin A again. That doesn't seem to square with the truth. All right, so now that kind of leads us to verse 10, I, the Lord, am bound. Here's the simple rule. I, the Lord, am bound when you do what I say. When you do not what I say, you have no promise. If you want to claim the Lord's blessings, the one and only way to claim the Lord's blessings is to do what he says. When you do what he says, you have claim upon those blessings. If you do not do what he says, it is not consistent with truth. It is not consistent with the Lord's kingdom to disobey God and expect the blessings of having obeyed. I love how Abraham Lincoln said it, where he says, my religion is simple. If I do good, I feel good. If I do bad, I feel bad. I think what the Lord's saying in section 8210, especially in verse nine, I'm going to tell you how to act that it may turn for your salvation. I think he's telling them, guys, get along. If you guys will show up and have a good attitude and get along, you're going to disagree. But if you will get along, it's going to be okay. Just come to me my way. So one last thought before we leave section 82. At the very end, verse 22, the Lord adds a little clarification to a parable in Luke 16 that is often misunderstood. So Jesus tells this parable of a man who's been dishonest and he's getting fired. But he has some time to clean up his affairs. And while he's cleaning up his affairs, he goes out to the people that owe his master money, and he cuts the debt in half. Now, he had legal authority to do that. So instead of owing $100,000, oh, let's put $50,000. And oh, you owe my Lord a million dollars, let's put $500,000. And the reason he did this is as soon as he gets kicked out of his job, now he has favors he can cash in. He's made connections with his position that will now help him secure his future. And the Lord commends him for that. And a lot of people are troubled by that because he commends his dishonesty. But what the Lord is saying is, no, I'm not commending his dishonesty. I'm commending his tenacity to take care of himself. Because sometimes people of faith can rely too much on faith. And there's a balance to that. 
You have to learn to take care of yourself. There's the balance. So I can put too much on God and not claim enough responsibility of myself. So the Lord says we've got to balance that, and you need to take care of yourself. The Lord's going to clarify some of the language that we find in the English version of Luke 16 leads people to believe Hey, go out and make your friends with money. Make your friends of money because that's how you succeed. The Lord says in verse 22 of section 82, make unto yourselves friends with the mammon of unrighteousness. In other words, guys, play in the sandbox with the world so that we can build the kingdom. Use the things of this world wisely so that people will help you build the kingdom. And I think the interpretation of that is we all have to live our lives. We all have to earn money. We have to drive cars and we have to have houses. And in our pursuit of worldly things, our attitude is I'm going to use these things to build the kingdom. Luke 16 is a very confusing part of the Bible. Yeah. If you go to the show notes, I kind of nerd out a little bit with the language because I think there's some really cool stuff happening here. Uh, With the word that's translated as the unrighteousness, uh, the word adikia is those that are unjust. And the Jews lived in a time when injustice prevailed especially to those who were crushed under the weight of the Roman Empire, as the Jews were. And so everything Bryce is saying is, is just right on. They're to associate with the treasures of the world, but also with those that are unjust. And so a couple ways you can look at this is that they were to work with the corrupt leaders of the temple. They were to have discourse with them and later discourse with Rome. I'm getting this out of the overall context of Luke 16, where the steward is able to procure at least something from the debtors of the master rather than getting nothing. He got something by having that discourse. Clearly, I don't think the Lord's saying, go be wicked, but I think he's saying, go ahead and have that discourse. Now, the rest of that verse in Luke 16 is fascinating because it says in the English to do this, they're to associate with the mammon of, of Adikias in order that when you fall, they might receive you into the eternal habitations. Now that word habitations is skenos. The, the, the Greek writers didn't write okios or domos, which is the word for homes. And the English translators put skenos as habitations. But guys, that's the word for the temple. That word is the equivalent of the Hebrew uh, mishkan, which is the temple. And so I'm just going to submit a couple interpretations of that verse. First of all, I think when he says, you're going to fall, I think he's telling his disciples they're going to be killed. I think that's what he's saying. Um, They receiving you could be those that are the adikias or the unjust ones, meaning that the 12 are to go out into the world of those that are unjust and have that discourse. And I would submit that perhaps this could be a reference to their continuing their discourse with the unjust ones, even in the eternities. And then finally, because the the writers of Luke put Scanus at the end of that verse, I think this has something to do with the temple, meaning that the writer of this text is giving us a hint that things associated in the temple go into the eternities. 
And that this association would continue between those holding the keys and those outside of justice, those outside of dikaios or aletheia, those outside of justice are going to have a discourse with those holding keys. So there's a lot going on in this verse. I just want to say that, but I really like it. But on a simple level, if I was teaching a class, I would just say, yes, the Lord wants us to live in a world where there is money and discourse. And by the way, when they go to Missouri, they're doing the things that they do in the 1830s to accumulate land. So play in the sandbox, but don't get muddy. In order to build the kingdom, we've got to buy land. We've got to invest. We've got to have a portfolio, but don't get dirty. Good stuff. So let's move on to section 83, which can be taken out of context and be offensive to some people. It may lead them to believe that the church believes men are more important than women, in that women have claim upon men, so men seem to be more important. And I just want to address that because the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints believes that men and women are equal. They're not the same. They don't do the same things and have the same responsibilities, but they are equal. Section 83 is about claiming goods in the Lord's storehouse, actually going and claiming money or food that has been set aside in the storehouse, the bishops in the Lord's storehouse. So who can claim goods out of the Lord's storehouse? And he's talking specifically in verse 1 to women who have lost their husbands or children who have lost their father. So that's kind of the setting. So let me just point out two very important principles that we need to hold in our hearts as underlying principles. Number one, there are two different priesthoods. There is a hierarchical priesthood, which we practice in the church, and there's a patriarchal priesthood, which we practice in the home. They are different. In the church, we practice hierarchical priesthood, and that means exactly what it sounds like, that each position in the church is in a hierarchy, and those higher in the hierarchy would have authority over those lower in the hierarchy. Hence, my bishop stops presiding the moment the stake president walks into my ward house. He presides in a hierarchical priesthood, and the stake president would stop presiding the moment a general authority comes to our state conference. That's hierarchical priesthood in which there's a system of a top that's in charge, and that's very appropriate for the church, which is the scaffolding building the most important unit, and that is the home. But in the home, We don't practice hierarchical priesthood. Husbands do not preside over wives. They are equals in the home. That's what the proclamation on the family makes clear. Equal partners in the home where we practice patriarchal priesthood. But in that the family is still a unit of the church, as far as claiming the blessings of the church, the church has laid that upon the husband, that the husband is the contact to the church. So very appropriately, during the pandemic, when we couldn't hold the sacrament in the church and my family couldn't go to the church and participate in the sacrament, the church very appropriately said to me, you are authorized to hold the sacrament in your home. And that became 
kind of my, as the father's, responsibility to make sure that the sacrament was administered in my home. As an extension of the church, I was given hierarchical authority to perform the sacrament in my home. Now, that's not something that my wife did. Now, that's not to say that I'm more important than my wife, because within the home, we practice patriarchal priesthood, and she and I stand side by side in authority. But where the home is a unit of the church and they were extending something to our family, it came to me, the father, and I performed that service every single week. So there's the balance between the patriarchal priesthood, which we practice in the home, and the hierarchical priesthood, which we practice in the church. So that being said, if a family needs resources from the church— they would go through the church's representative in that family, which is the father. Within the family, that doesn't mean husband and wife are any different. So, verse 2, women have claim on their husbands for their maintenance until their husbands are taken, and then they have claim upon the church. Children have claim upon their parents for their maintenance until they are of age, and then they have claim upon the church. So do you see that hierarchy? In no way is the Lord suggesting that men and women are not equals within the home. But as an extension of the church unit, we go through the hierarchy, and we claim the blessings of the Lord's storehouse. The second principle that we need to understand is the main principle of church welfare. We have an incredible welfare system where we have resources for those that are in need, that the church can help people pay their bills and feed their children and put food on the table. And many people have been recipients of those goods The church has means, the church has food for people who need it. But there is an underlining rule. President Spencer W. Kimball stated it most eloquently, so I'm just going to quote President Kimball. The responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, or economic well-being. That's a pretty complete list. I'm going to say that again. The responsibility for each person's social, emotional, spiritual, physical, or economic well-being rests first upon himself, second upon his family, and third upon the church if he is a faithful member thereof. And then this statement President Kimball continues, no true Latter-day Saint, while physically or emotionally able, will voluntarily shift the burden of his own or his family's well-being to someone else. So long as he can, under the inspiration of the Lord and with his own labors, he will supply himself and his family with the spiritual and temporal necessities of life. In other words, everyone has the responsibility to take care of themselves. The church is not going to get involved until you have done all that you can do. Now, if you can't meet your needs, like a child, for example, or a widowed woman, if you can't meet your needs, then you call upon first your family. 
So the church is going to ask, is there anyone in your family that can help meet those needs? We need to call upon our family first. And then if your family can't meet those needs, the church will meet those needs. But no one will shift down to a lower hierarchy the responsibility that they themselves can take care of. So what the Lord is doing in section 83 here is establishing the hierarchy. He's saying a child who can't take care of himself has a right to go to his parents and say, I need your help. And if those parents can't meet those needs, the parents would go to the rest of their family. And if the family can't meet the needs, then they will go to the church. Bryce, the only thing I would add to this is this constant theme throughout the Old Testament that God is the father of the fatherless and a judge of the widows. That's Psalm 68. He's setting things right. He's putting things fair. The word judge or justice or judgment is used throughout the Old Testament. Um, in, in by the way, actually in that text, the word is like a defender or an advocate. And that's who I believe God is, that he knows the widows and orphans. And I see the overarching idea here in section 83. We see this in the other stuff with the bishops is that the Lord wants his bishops to make sure that our people are taken care of. And with that, we thank you. Thanks for joining us. Next time when we get together, we're going to be looking at section 84. Which is deep and rich and wonderful. We'll see you next week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.